Pod with me, Richard Hermer, together with Helen Mountfield and Murray Hunt. If you tuned into our last episode, you would have heard our discussion with the Shadow Lord Chancellor David Lammy about the Black Lives Matters protests on both sides of the Atlantic, how they fail to be understood in their historical context, and most importantly, what they highlight about the underlying pervasiveness of systemic and institutionalised racism. If you've not had a chance to listen, I'd recommend streaming or downloading it from our website or whatever platform you choose to pick up your favourite pods. And when you're there, you might also want to get hold of our earlier discussion with The Guardian's Afua Hirsch on how and why the COVID crisis is is impacting unequally on BAME communities. Today's podcast stays on the theme of protest at institutionalised injustices, but rather focus simply on the reaction to the killing of George Floyd we want to take the long view and explore some of the wider themes exemplified by the protests through the lens of transitional justice. Transitional justice is a phrase used to describe how societies once torn apart by conflicts can deal with past legacies and move forward, whether through truth commissions, national apologies, compensation, monuments, or a range of other mechanisms of accountability and redress. Now, nobody's going to suggest that the pervasiveness of systemic racism is going to be solved overnight, let alone by erecting a memorial. But is there any realistic chance of addressing it without an accounting for the history that's got us to this point? Can one understand how an officer considers it acceptable to keep a knee on a man's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds without understanding the preceding centuries of systemic disregard for the integrity of black people's bodies? through slavery, Jim Crow and segregation? And how might the Transitional Justice Toolkit help all communities learn from the past for the benefit of us all? As we celebrate in The Guardian or criticise in The Telegraph the tearing down of statues, as we see calls in the United States for defunding of police forces or police-free zones, we want to explore what lessons, if any, can be drawn from the experience of transition in other societies that have been riddled with injustices, be it apartheid South Africa or under oppressive regimes across the globe. And we also want to explore, in the context of protest, the point at which it ever becomes acceptable to break the law. Joining us here to discuss is one of the most prominent thinkers on transitional justice, Paul Vanzel. Paul is the former Executive Secretary of the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission, where he served between 1995 and 1998, before moving to the United States, where in 2001, he co-founded the International Centre for Transitional Justice, a not-for-profit organisation working in over 40 countries that have experienced human rights abuses under repressive regimes in order to help them secure accountability for past crimes and also put in place structures for peaceful coexistence. Paul's crossed the Atlantic again in recent years to come to London to found the Conduit Club, which aims to provide a home for those simultaneously committed to social change and also fun nights out. What not to like about that? Paul, welcome to the Matrix Law Pod. Can I start with a very broad question? I've given a one sentence, no doubt, wholly inaccurate explanation for transitional justice, but what does it mean? And is it a useful tool for dealing with what might be thought of as ingrained social political problems within democracies, as opposed to transitions like you underwent in South Africa from repressive regimes? 
Transitional justice is a body of knowledge and practice that refers to how societies deal with a legacy of gross violations of human rights. And it seeks to study uh, what is effective and what is effective is from really two perspectives. One is to restore the dignity of victims. And the second is to ensure that the violations don't occur again in the future. And if you look at it through that prism, whether it's prosecuting and holding criminally accountable those responsible for the most serious crimes, whether it's establishing the truth about what occurred in the past, whether it's about offering reparation to those who have suffered, whether it's reforming state institutions to ensure that they protect people's rights as opposed to violate them, whether it's seeking to stitch back societies that have been riven with ethnic or religious or other forms of identity conflict, um, transitional justice tries to apply um, both academic rigor and practice to try and deal with these questions. Now, it's obviously um, different in societies freshly emerging from systemic uh, human rights abuse. The, uh, the juntas in the southern cone of Latin America, apartheid South Africa, um, Sohato's Indonesia, to how these questions are dealt with in the United States, the United Kingdom, more established, long-standing democracies. But it is relevant in one fundamental respect, and that is that um, it is very difficult, I would say well-nigh impossible, to deal with the legacy of systemic racism or human rights abuse if that abuse is not acknowledged. And the distinction here between knowledge and acknowledgement is crucial. Knowledge is the factual state of affairs. Uh, reasonable people will not disagree that the factual state of affairs has arisen. Acknowledgement has a moral quality. It says that those facts have occurred, but they were wrong. And we ourselves as a society commit to ensure that they never happen again. And by extension, we commit ourselves to redress those wrongs insofar as they are present um, in, in current day affairs. And I think the challenge that we have in modern day democracies is that there is insufficient acknowledgement by those people who wield political power and economic and other forms of power about the past. And without that acknowledgement, you can't then undertake the changes that you need to do. And that is why I think that the, that the conflict around statues and monuments and memorials has acquired such salience at this particular moment, because it's about the past, but acknowledging that these people were slave owners and that's unacceptable to be celebrating them in the middle of public squares must, if it leads to acknowledgement, then lead to the kinds of structural and systemic reforms that are desperately required. And without that acknowledgement, it's difficult to harness the political support in order to get there. To come back to statues um, in a moment, if I if I may, but can I just try and drill down into this distinction you draw between knowledge and acknowledgement? And perhaps you can just talk a little about the South African experience, where obviously everybody had knowledge of what was going on with the apartheid regime and what the apartheid regime did. But to what extent was the TRC seeking to bring all of society to a point of acknowledgement and 
if that was an aim, how did it seek to do it? Well, the strange thing is, I think what obtained in South Africa does apply in modern democracies as well. Um, you say, because you've been involved in human rights work for many years, that everybody had knowledge. But as, as stunning as it may sound, white South Africans who colluded actively and benefited from apartheid and could not reasonably say that, you know, this was not a deeply racist system, um, didn't have knowledge uh, that people were being assassinated, ordered to be assassinated at the highest bodies within the South African state, were then being poisoned, their bodies being disappeared, Latin American style. I didn't have knowledge that there was a widespread and systematic use of torture in order to obtain information and to terrorize and intimidate anti-apartheid activists. So in some ways, the Truth Commission did two things at once. It's over a period of three years through hearings and through investigations and through meticulous documentation established an irrefutable body of knowledge. But as it went on, as you heard day after day, night after night, front pages of newspapers on daily television broadcasts, um, human beings giving an account of torture or mothers describing what it's like to have their son assassinated or disappeared, and the sheer human brutality and the uh, embodiment of that through victim testimony, it moved people from a state of an absence, a willful absence, but an absence of knowledge, to a process of acknowledgement. And Many of my friends in the anti-apartheid movement, when I was working for the Truth Commission, moved into Nelson Mandela's government, and several of them worked, moved into the police force, relevant to today's discussions. And they, night after night, day after day, would tell me, working from within the Truth Commission, that we were making their job easier, because it became harder and harder for the upper echelons of the South African police, who at that point were all white, to resist systemic change, when day after day, accounts of torture, disappearance, assassination, abuse, um, following arrest, the excessive use of police force were being documented by the Truth Commission in the public square. And so this toggle between the knowledge-seeking and acknowledgement-generating work of the Truth Commission and then structural reforms in the police force worked symbiotically together. So how do we or how can we um, use those type of experiences um, to help address the problems that we are currently facing with systemic racism and have always faced in our societies with systemic racism? How can we use those? And what are the particular tools that have applied not only in South Africa, but in other areas, uh, in other countries that have gone through transition? What are the tools that, that, that may be of particular use to both us and the United States. Well, let's start with let's start with slavery. Um, so, little known fact: the United Kingdom's government, at some point, chose to finance through the public purse the liberation of slaves. And as you know, uh, uh, committed a sum of money. I believe roughly in the amount of 20 million pounds, which in today's money is 17 billion pounds in order to buy the freedom of slaves. 
it took till 2015 there or thereabouts to pay off that debt. Uh, there were people who were direct descendants of British prime ministers who were paid 80 million pounds in today's money for 2,500 slaves. And if you think for a moment that the British taxpayer paid for the end of slavery, on, on one level, you would say, well, that seems like a rather honorable thing to have done. The one essential fact is that they paid that money to slave owners. And if you think of it in that way, the British taxpayer transferred 17 billion pounds in today's money to the owners of slaves without compensating slaves. And then when slaves freedom was bought by public money, the apprenticeship system for another six years thereafter continued to require people to work without compensation. If that 17 billion pounds had been transferred at that time to slaves, which it should have done by any legal or moral form of accounting, imagine the economic and societal basis that we would be dealing with now in terms of a distribution of resources, generational opportunity, legacies of acquired education resources, the distinction between upper and lower classes, um, indeed, systemic and structural racism and inequality. And so what you have to do, and, and, and when I describe this, I would say, you know, to your earlier question about knowledge and acknowledgement, if you took a poll amongst ordinary white UK citizens and asked them, is this what happened? How much money was transferred? And does that intuitively seem just or right to you? And if you now know it happens and it seems intuitively unjust, it must therefore follow that there is a terrible original sin on that account, and then you can name two dozen others that require active remedying. And then if you start from that conversation, then all of a sudden, the terms of debate change. And the trick, I think, in this country is it is difficult to get people who have benefited in the past and arguably continue to benefit from an original sin to acknowledge that sin and then to take steps that may not be in their interest in a short-term political sense um, when there are a range of political forces encouraging them not to do so and who have an interest, an electoral and political interest in them not doing so. And so if you want to capture what this moment requires, it is a, an act of extraordinary uh, political and activist deafness on the one hand, to drive home knowledge and acknowledgement. On the other hand, to build sufficient political support amongst a group of people who have benefited from that original sin, that compensation and remedy and change is required. And to do so in a highly fractious society riven by COVID um, with the polarization and populism that has come in recent years is a trick. Well, I want, to, I want to ask you, if, if I may, about this moment and what this moment might represent. And it ties in really with what you're saying about reparations. I mean, we're recording this on the morning that Lloyd's have announced that they are going to make some reparations for the role that they had and also another national brewer. 
uh, that they had or in the slave trade. And that's a conversation that's that's now happening that is would have been almost inconceivable even a few months ago. I mean, I remember a couple of years ago representing Caribbean nations in a, on, a, on a, a potential reparation case. And even to kind of very liberal friends, I would have real difficulty explaining to, in a way that persuade them um, about the case for reparations and why there was a moral and legal, but certainly moral argument for it. But now we've got almost hard to believe we've got major institutions like Lloyd's and others talking about reparations. And it's made me think, and what I'd be interested in your views, Paul, having seen other countries be on the verge of change, some go down that route like South Africa, some pull back like Egypt. In terms of what we're seeing now in the United States and in other countries, do you think this is a, a profound moment of change as we think about our responsibilities for the past? There is no doubt that a combination of factors, I mean, I, I can't believe that it is a coincidence that this is occurring in a once in a 150 year um, economic and political meltdown. I think what, what, what the coronavirus has done is it has destabilized a series of political and economic certainties and it has disrupted both the you know the 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 sense of gradually increasing prosperity that is obtained in modern democracies and it has therefore created the political space for um, a more um, energetic uh, possibly radical movement to 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 call for justice and to try and tackle it in a systemic way. So I think that there is, it has opened up. There is no question that there is everything to play for at this moment. But I think there are incredible opportunities, but also deep perils. And um, one of the things that the ANC understood in South Africa was that you have to turn your political capital into structural change. And there comes a moment in a revolution when you overplay your hand, when you've won the argument on the streets with the elites in the international community. And then what you have to do is translate those hard-fought activist gains, gains into policies, constitutional gains, structural gains, economic gains. Um, and I think the great risk in this moment, and I think it's embodied and exemplified by the statues debate, is there is no question that it is deeply offensive and unimaginable that you would put a large statue of Adolf Hitler in the middle of Trafalgar Square and say, well, some point he was a very important figure in Germany and you know some people agree and some people don't agree but part of world history I mean who can deny that Adolf Hitler was part of world history and then require many victims of Nazism to walk past him on a daily basis and then say well let's reframe that shall we recontextualize that let's put a different plaque on there let's ask you know people to be reasonable in engaging with us and can't we all be thoughtful and let's deal with this in a rule of law way 
Um, you know, it's unimaginable that that would happen. But that is what is required of black people. It's re- literally what is required of them. Slavers. These are slavers, for God's sake. Um, so that these need to be addressed and removed is vital. And also, just to put into context, it's not like people went from, oh, I love that statue, to I'm going to blow it up tomorrow. There have been decades of extraordinary British forbearance. Could we write a plaque on the bottom of it? Could we put some language neatly on there? Could we write a petition? Could we go to a university council and ask politely, please may this be removed? Under normal circumstances, people who've experienced this should never have to exercise that kind of forbearance. It should be an utter no-brainer to take these things down. These are people who cause people to die in their own vomit in the bottom of ships and deprive people of their most essential qualities of humanity. It's not, it shouldn't be a debate. But because of the electoral and demographic math of this country, if you overplay your hand in seeking to remove all of these statues in a uncontrolled, unrule of law, unregulated way, it will play into the hands of populists who derive a significant part of the electoral advantage and political power from being able to appeal to a sense of grievance that we've seen in the Brexit debate, we've seen in the economic uh, insecurity and inequality that white working class people have experienced in this country. And you can play to a politics of grievance and identity politics in a way that will cause you to lose. So what you go back to then is protesters and activists are required in their activism to exercise forbearance yet again in order to be prudent, in order to deal with this matter that leaves them stronger and better off at the end of this. And that's a really hard thing to do. And it takes a Nelson Mandela to say to activists on the street who have righteous rage, direct it, but then step back and translate it into a gain. And I think the the question I have right now is we need to channel that fury and that righteous fury, but we need to distill it into a set of demands and gains so that when we win the argument on the street, we can translate it into enduring gains. And that articulation, I think, is insufficiently elaborated at this moment. Not a criticism. It's not for me to criticize, but it is, I think, a call to action for people to say, we're chasing a bus. Let's make sure when we catch the bus, we're able to divert its course, not just bark at it. And does that become a risk that you play to the opposition's agenda? I mean, you're not going to get any of us to disagree with your analysis as the repugnance of the statues and the extraordinary fact that it should even be a debate. But it is a debate. Um, Is there a fear that that the debate masks the underlying problem? I mean, obviously, statues of people like Rhodes and uh, 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 um, and slave owners should go, but the real issues are the, are the systemic issues. The fact that if you're a young black man, you're much more likely to be caught up in the criminal justice system, the economic equalities that flow from systemic racism. And does there become a danger that we, we, we stop talking about those because the Daily Mail is getting angry about statues? 
That is precisely the danger. And so I think in some ways what you have to do is to say it's wildly symbolic. It's an obvious source of anger. And it is an easy source of activism because you can galvanize a group of people to go to a public square to protest and tear down a statue in a way that is much harder to deal with disparities in housing and different educational opportunities and structural reform of police forces and all of the deeper, more embedded, more difficult sources of injustice. So I think one of the things that both in the US and the UK that needs to be done, in my judgment, is seize this symbolic moment, convert it into a form of sort of narrative and storytelling in the public square, convert those facts into acknowledgement and wrap that around a process which then galvanizes that sense of injustice and outrage into a set of you know, five easily discernible long-term investments and to make the argument that it's not just just to do so, but also to say it is in the enlightened self-interest of those people who have benefited for stability, for the sense of decency and self, for, for um, societal progress, for wasted human opportunity, for us to make these investments. And I think if you do it in that way, you can, com- you can probably win a slim political majority to do it. Um, and you in aggregate can be better off, but it requires a form of leadership that is statesmanlike, uh, that is um, willing to go against your constituency, who's not going to play history as a divisive card, and is not going to do, I'm afraid, exactly the sort of things that have occurred from those in power in the last couple of weeks that have happened. Um, and that's the great trick in this moment. Um, yeah, Paul, I think that's fascinating. And I've always thought, um, I remember words of Victor Kiernan that a history um, that's ignored doesn't disappear. It becomes a tradition. It weighs you down. It, it's, it's the base from which you construct your society. And I'm, and I'm speaking from a university, so obviously I have a lot of students very exercised about the roads must fall um, issue. But I think it's very important that they convert this into a series of structural demands. Um, Our colleague Matthew Ryder has written about not losing sight of the need for structural reforms in the police and this being a particular thing. But I do think that part of the traction we have is because of the moment we're in, because of the differential effects of the COVID crisis in this country on, on black and minority ethnic communities, and that's being reported. And I also think the demand that people should be making is, yes, not so much. We, we do want these very important symbolic statues to go, but we also want the curriculum to change because, because I think a lot of people of goodwill, as you said about white South Africans, who just didn't know. They'd say, oh, yeah, he was involved in mines. It was probably historic stuff, but he was a huge, Rhodes was a huge educational philanthropist. And that's a side of him too. Well, okay, it is, but we have to we have to talk about our history and we have to look at the curriculum and what are the books in the libraries in Oxford and what's on the syllabuses. And that seems to me a really important part of the conversation too. How do we police people? What's the health system? What's the justice system? And what, what do we tell ourselves? And, and that is the moment I think that people with a voice should be using right now. Yeah. I mean, I think on roads, you know, one of the great acts of genius of Mandela was to kind of say, look, the Rhodes Scholarship has been a thing that has sent some of the finest 
paradoxically finest human rights lawyers in South Africa to Oxford and then to return to fight the struggle and um, ill-gotten gains can be used for good. And one of the, the things that we did in South Africa is rename the Rhodes Scholarship to the Mandela Rhodes Scholarship and Mandela through a very Mandela-esque act of genius sort of appropriated it. And if you go to Rhodes House in Oxford right now, there's a huge beaming portrait of Nelson Mandela in the middle of the of Rhodes House. Um, and in a way, what you do then is you have the, you know, the courage to allow that legacy to remain, but you capture it and you convert it. And then you say, well, the condition of having my name attached to this is I want, you know, funds to be directed so that we get a better applicant pool of black road scholars. I want to make sure that universities are generating equal opportunities so that the finest um, applicant pool is properly representative and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you use that leverage in the right sort of ways. Um, but it requires a particular kind of, of generosity, but it also comes, a generosity comes with power because Mandela had power. And I think the challenge in these contexts is that if you don't have the power um, in the formal sense, you do have to kind of work in this sort of strange coalition politics of having large chunks of, of the previously uh, unjustly enriched come along with you. And that requires a deftness that is hard to forbear when people are genuinely angry and outraged. Paul, thank you so much for that analysis. I think um, <clears throat> it's a, that's really the crucial question. How, how can we learn... The lessons from transitional justice around the world in these different countries um, in the particular circumstances of these relatively settled democracies of the US and the UK at this particularly unusual moment. Um, and I completely agree as well with your analysis of how to try and join up the current sort of focus on symbolism and iconography with a much more action-oriented um, and urgent approach to longer-term structural change. I completely agree with that analysis. Um, my question is about what our options are. Um, and, and from your experience, your long experience of transitional justice, what sort of processes we can start to think about creating now, um, which won't be simply kicking it into the long grass. <clears throat> the government's announcement of, a, um, of some sort of commission looking at inequality um, has, I think, understandably produced a very strong reaction that that's just more talking and not action. We need a process which can talk and start addressing the acknowledgement question, which you've rightly identified, at the same time as taking action. Um, and uh, something like a, a TRC, a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, um, is, is not conceivable, really, in our current circumstances. Um, there's been a lot of discussion in the Northern Ireland context about whether we should establish such a process. And that's uh, a discussion which has dragged on for many years without making much progress. Um, so I'm just wondering, um, have you got any suggestions for us about what sorts of processes we can establish now, which will both act and start to address the acknowledgement question? I think a very, very interesting analogous movement that is worth looking at is the, the struggle um, of LGBTQ communities, because in some way that's a minority and it's a minority that has been in the last couple of decades wildly successful in fighting for um, its own rights, both in the kind of uh, cultural, cultural sphere, 
but also in the legal sphere. I mean, as evidenced just this week by a very important landmark U.S. Supreme Court judgment. Um, and I think what it managed to do is through um, a, a set of very well-articulated um, appeals to decency, appeals to humanity, appeals to dignity, to say, why is it that people can't love people of the same gender? Do you really think people are less responsible and less loving parents? Um, do we care for each other and love for each other less? Are we less effective co-workers? Um, do we make less or more um, contributions to our society? Um, the demonization that we were associated with the past, is that really opposite? Um, and then to work that at um, a kind of symbolic level. And I think, you know, I, I watched the Premier League open again in the UK yesterday with my two sons. And what was on the back of every single person's football jersey was Black Lives Matter. And what did they do be, once the whistle was blown off, there was a moment of silence for coronavirus. Everybody got onto their knee. These are hugely symbolic things. I mean, how that plays with Chelsea fans who are, you know, 55-year-old angry white guys with a history of racism and seeing that happen becomes transformative. And so I think part of what I've always struggled with is that America is the country of Hollywood and storytelling and narrative and Oprah Winfrey. Um, and what it needs to do is harness its narrative ability to tell the story of what happened in the past. And if you think about it, you know, um, Sir David Adjaye, one of the UK's most celebrated architects, um, uh, played a role in designing the National Museum of African American History and Culture in the heart of the Washington Mall, the last museum set up to the memory of African Americans. And um, who would have thought that it took this long and in the recent past to establish this museum? But from the second that it opened, it was full and had queues and waiting lists, six-month-long waiting lists, one of the most visited museums in America. And so I think part of an activist agenda is to harness sports, the media, the cultural sphere, the artistic sphere, and to, to do what we do incredibly well, which is tell stories of humanity and dignity and injustice and the, requ the requirement to correct it. And then to play the kind of inside-outside game to do the work that, you know, you guys know about the work of the Human Dignity Trust and the people who do the death penalty project and the work of Matrix, dare I say, to fight on the inside. Um, and then to work with political parties. And I think there's a huge, huge challenge and missed opportunity here for the Labour Party because I think if the Labour Party... Liberal Democrats as well have to use this moment to have to use this moment to um, articulate a set of principled requirements that this gets tackled at a parliamentary level and do so maybe taking a bit of a risk but be seen to be leaders and uniters and healers and and thoughtful, sensible um, 
politicians. And if they do so against a backdrop of what's happening in the cultural and the public sphere, they will get political support to do it, but they will also get political support if they act with integrity. But if they're too cautious and they're too rule of law-y and they're too diffident and, 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 and um, insufficiently bold in doing the right thing, then they will erode support from crucial communities, from young people, and I think they will erode their own moral standing. Paul, one of the particularly interesting sessions of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission uh, was the hearings into the responsibility of the judiciary and the legal profession during apartheid. And David Dysonhouse has written a fantastic account of those hearings in which he took part called Judging the Judges, Judging Ourselves. And I'm just interested in your thoughts about the legal profession, the judiciary here uh, and in the US and how we can begin a process which enables them also to think about their role, both historically and whether there are things to account for there and to acknowledge, but also looking forward, uh, what they can actually do, what they can do to engage in this particular moment uh, and how they can now begin to address some of those systemic things we've been talking about. One of the things we did in the Truth Commission in South Africa is do what we called sectoral hearings, where we looked at all the main professions and got them to do a process of self-analysis to say, what did we do well? What did we do wrong? How were we complicit? How were we activists? When did we stand on the side of angels? And when did we contribute towards oppression? And perhaps unsurprisingly, some of the most vigorous and interesting ones were in the legal profession, because lawyers in South Africa, on the one hand, stood at the front of the struggle against apartheid, did the most important death penalty work, uh, you know, took people out of detention without trial, uh, did inquests into assassinations and torture. Um, some of the very finest human rights lawyers in the world, dare I say it, you know, cut their teeth in South Africa. Um, and then on the other hand, apartheid was codified law. Um, people went through the legal profession, became judges, applied apartheid law, got very rich supporting the government, um, and practiced in a wildly unequal system, which um, had a whole bunch of structural consequences. And so I'm a great fan of um, self-reflection and profession, take the profession itself and its bodies and set up processes to say, let's have an honest accounting of what we did and we didn't do um, and go all the way back and then go through the recent past. And then it is almost always something that supports those on the side of the angels because it's never a, a, a fun process looking back. And then what that does is says, okay, we, we dare I say it, acknowledge that. And we will now commit ourselves to do things. You know, this, this is the training that we'll have in our bar schools. This is what we will do as, as law firms. These are the sorts of things we'll support in terms of pro bono work. These are the ways in which we'll participate in engaging with the government on human rights questions. And you can very quickly set out a, an agenda for how the profession can do better. And it becomes trapped in its own logic. Once you've looked back, it almost becomes inevitable that you chart a series of steps uh, going forward. And I, I think that that self-examination is something I would highly recommend. And where we stand today, Paul, drawing your experience of what you saw in South Africa and indeed what you've seen all over the world when advising on transitional justice issues, are you an optimist? 
I think this is a moment that reminds me of South Africa in 1989. I think it's um, it's a moment that can go um, both ways. And I think in the if you look at the ledger, the in the debt column, you have uh, the cataclysm of climate change coming down, down upon us. Climate change is like coronavirus without a vaccine. Uh, you know, it is irreversible and we're at the 11th hour and 45 minutes so and on balance i believe that this moment will be net negative for efforts to deal with climate in economic terms and in political terms it may create renewed mobilization as we've seen on issues of race and inequality on climate to push for more radical change but it will be against a harder economic and structural backdrop. Um, you have a rise of a set of populist leaders. I mean, if you were to think back to 1989 in South Africa and think about the power of Trump and China and Putin and Bolsonaro, um, a set of, of not just dangerous populists, but also a set of dangerous populists who don't care about democracy and human rights and the relative balance of power between them and the forces of good is is not a good balance of power in, in in my judgment and then you have the changing nature of work so you have massive structural inequality a huge concentration of economic and political power and then you have a technology fueled change of labor markets which are eroding unemployment and eroding employment and so if you add climate change populism um deep uh, structural unemployment. If you add on top of that, the largest movement of human beings across borders that we've seen in the history of the world, um, and where those people moving across borders are largely people from poor countries who have got brown and black skins coming into wealthy countries where the majority is white, you have a recipe for a kind of race-based populism to capture power and to keep power in a circumstance where we don't have the time for these people to be in power because they have no interest in passing the policies that the planet desperately needs. And then if you go onto the positive side of the ledger, you say this is a moment in which activists are on the streets where calls for justice have never been greater, where the link between climate and public health has never been more evident where an investment in the public good and in prevention and in caring for each other has never been higher. And if we seize this moment, and if we bend the arc of you know, uh, history towards justice, but it will not happen automatically, it will happen through activism and through engagement and through vigor, then I think we will emerge from this just ahead. <laughs> but if we are passive, and we leave it to the status quo, and we allow those people who are invested in dividing us to win, because they are very active right now, um, then we will have squandered the small window of time that has been granted to us. Well, Paul, that's um, perhaps the first time in all our podcasts that we're drawing to a close on an even remotely optimistic uh, outlook. So, um, Thank you for that. And thank you for uh, all your um, insights. Um, 
on the really extraordinary times um, that we're presented with. Um, I've pre-warned you, but no matter how depressing the subject matters of all our podcasts, and they are almost unremittingly depressing, I'm afraid, because of the nature of human rights, um, we always want to leave with a book recommendation from our guests. So one that you would recommend to anybody during lockdown or one that you've particularly enjoyed during uh, lockdown. What's your, what's your recommendation? Uh, there's a wonderful book called by Eric Liu called You're More Powerful Than You Think, um, which is a sort of study of citizen activism. Um, and it sort of sets out um, how it is that uh, ordinary people can organize and galvanize and reclaim power. Um, and it's, it's, um, it's a kind of toolkit to sort of get involved and to leverage your position, which, which I think is a kind of tonic for our times. Thanks for that, Paul, and thanks very much for joining us. So I thought a completely fascinating um, discussion with Paul with some really rather profound, thought-provoking insights. Helen... Murray's question touched upon our responsibilities as uh, lawyers to try and help affect change. I mean, you look at this in two roles, really. I mean, A, obviously, as a lawyer, but also you're head of a Oxford college. What are, you, what, are, what are your reflections on what we need to be thinking about doing? Well, it, I mean, it reminded me about what, what the Macpherson uh, report said about the uh, responsibility of all institutions to look at the way they do business, the consequences of what they think about and don't think about, and um, to avoid institutional racism, to address those, decide what they're going to do. So I was really interested by what Paul said about the sectoral hearings in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. That's something, it seems to me, that we, we don't have a Truth and Reconciliation Commission process. We're not in a kind of moment when I think we would have one. But it does seem to me that people with power in sectors ought to be looking at what structurally can we do. There's been a, a moment, a, a symbolic moment of outpouring of, of pain and, and recognition of historical wrongs. What are we going to do about it in our sectors in practical terms? So um, uh, Murray's talked about what might happen in the in the legal system. I think in the educational system, we can look at the curriculum, the stories we tell ourselves, the pathways through academic life for people in underrepresented groups. Um, and again, in, in, the, you know, in the police, we still need to review uh, prosecution policies, the way the justice system works. I think it was really a good, a good moment for sectors to look at what can we do in practical terms. I mean, there does, this does seem to be a particular moment in which lots of the institutions are perhaps more open to change than has previously seemed the, seemed the case. I mean, whether that's because they're doing it out of desire or shame or self-protection or a mixer of all of those. But this does seem like a particularly a particular moment to, 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 to insist on change. Yeah, I think so. But I think the insistence has to come, as Paul, as Paul was saying, you can take the symbolic actions which capture a moment. The trick then is to turn them into um, actions which you want to take place for the future and to get those with power in establishments of one kind or another to address those and take them seriously while you have their ear. 
Yes, I think that's right. I was particularly struck by Paul's comments and reflections on the interdependence of talking about things, knowledge seeking, um, and action to address structures to address structural things. I thought his account of how the TRC process actually fed into uh, practical change at the time the TRC was going on um, is particularly relevant really for our, this particular moment for us. And that's the real challenge, I think, how we can take that, those insights into the, the, the importance of acknowledgement uh, in a way which isn't just more talking and no action. Uh, so we need those processes to, to, go, to go on and to build on this heightened consciousness that the uh, statute protests are revealing. Uh, and actually, at the same time, think about how we're going to urgently implement the recommendations of the various reviews that we've got, the Lamy review, the Windrush review, the Grenfell review, uh, the Public Health England reports, which are now coming out. So there's a whole series of recommendations uh, where there are no obstacles to immediate implementation. We need to be getting on to actually implementing those recommendations uh, at the same time as we conduct this process of truth seeking, fact finding and acknowledgement. Well, thank you both uh, very much um, for another fascinating um, discussion. Uh, we're going to be back next week with another podcast. In the meantime, thank you to Rachel Murray, our producer, and thank you for listening. <laughs>